Hey, again, my name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Zach will bring you one. And if you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. And this morning we are in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, good morning. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for um, having me. Dang, Tanner, this thing is tall, man. I gotta, um, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Like Tanner said, my name is Justin, and I am currently preparing and, and training to, uh, to start a church uh, just like this one uh, in Austin. Um, uh, my family and I, uh, well, my wife and I are from uh, originally from a small town in Arkansas called Arkadelphia. It is a real place. And uh, many of you, if you've gone to any city north, uh, well, from Odessa, maybe you probably, anywhere on the East Coast, you may have driven through Arkadelphia, but we definitely did not notice it. And, um, and we, uh, for the past seven years, I have been a college pastor, uh, reaching primarily uh, college students from Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and um, have been connected through uh, uh, several relationships around college ministry to the Redeemer Network. Uh, there's several uh, Redeemer Network churches that are in college towns, and the college pastors, the college um, guys who were uh, trying to reach those college students are friends of mine. And, and uh, long story short, uh, Redeemer Church in Lubbock decided that they wanted to focus their um, strategic, they wanted to focus their, their strategy around church planting towards college uh, towns, towards the cities where I had major universities in them. And the reason for that is because college students are what I would consider the most strategic uh, uh, population, most strategic age group in the United States when it comes to um, reaching someone for the gospel, but also sending people around the world for the gospel. College students are the most unreached age demographic in the U.S., but they're also, as, as you might remember from your time in college, like uh, the most uh, uh, available, the most sendable, the the least tied down, and, and so we we see that as a gift from God to be able to reach a generation who desperately needs Jesus, and then also um, reach a generation that has a massive uh, potential behind it to to be sent around the world so that we can make disciples of every nation um, on on earth. And and so um, it's a it's a it's a privilege for me 
to be able to be a part of that. And so Redeemer Lubbock uh, called me and said, hey, we're wanting to plant churches in uh, college towns. What do you think? And I said, dude, that sounds like an amazing thing. Um, let's do it. And so my family and I moved to uh, Lubbock, Texas, as, uh, as far west as I have ever been. Uh, is actually at this point, I've, I've been to New Mexico since living in Lubbock, but Lubbock is the farthest west I have ever lived. And um, as you guys know, if you've been to Arkansas, geographically um, uh, and uh, whatever, it's the exact opposite of where I'm from. Um, uh, West Texas is, is, I'm from mountains and trees and lakes. West Texas is uh, uh, not that, you know. And and so, uh, but we have have really loved uh, living here. And uh, we're excited uh, to go to Austin, but we're, we're kind of sad about um, needing to, to leave Lubbock in uh, a year. Um, so I, I'm married. I have uh, a wife who's been married to me for almost eight years now, uh, right? Yeah, almost eight years now. And we have two kids, a three-year-old named Shepard and a one-year-old named Jude. Uh, and uh, God has been doing some pretty incredible things in Lubbock. Um, as we have prepared, we have actually gained um, a, a team. We, we have, uh, God has blessed us with a team of people who will be joining us in Austin, a staff team and a core team of people who are not working at the church but are going to go get jobs at um, in Austin or go to school in Austin and help us to plant the church as uh, as leaders in the church, but as, as we don't like this term, but lay members um, of the church. And then two, or one of our staff members is actually um, here with us, Ryan, and then his wife, Callie. Ryan's actually uh, my brother-in-law. Callie is my sister, and Ryan has been a, uh, a next-generation pastor at a church in Little Rock um, for quite some time now. And so uh, God has graciously provided them to join our team, uh, three other staff members and their spouses, and Lord willing, a couple of others and then 30 college students slash anywhere from like 21 20 year old to like 28 year olds um, 30 of them have said we want to pick up our lives we want to get jobs in Austin and come help uh, plant the church and so right now what is going to happen in Austin next year is a 30 year old pastor leading a bunch of 28 to 20 year olds so pray for us um, high energy, low wisdom. And, and, and so we're, we're, we're excited. We're really dependent on what God's going to do. And, and so this morning, I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about this parable that Jesus tells. And as I understand it, you guys are in a series on Mark, correct? And so if this is your first time here, that particular parable sounds extremely depressing. Um, it's kind of a bummer. There's a lot of beating up and there's a lot of killing and then the owner of the vineyard comes and destroys and they wanted to arrest Jesus and all this stuff. And that's basically the whole story. There's not much of a joyous moment within the story of itself. But if you've been following along um, in the series on Mark that you guys have been going through um, to make sure that we're all on the same page, let's kind of retell the story. So we're in the, we're in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, which uh, means that we are on our way to the cross, even if you haven't been around Christianity or church or, or the Bible, you understand probably that Jesus um, dies on a cross. And so we, for, since chapter 8 of Mark, since the, since the halfway point of the 16-chapter book here, we have been headed toward the cross, and Jesus is, is very aware of what is about to happen. Jesus knows where he is going. This is not something that happened to him. This is something that he was born for. It's something that he came to earth uh, for, to die on the cross and be, 
and be raised again um, to usher in the new creation. And so we are headed towards that cross, and, and that cross um, happens, that crucifixion happens in Jerusalem. And as you guys know, I don't know when you guys covered this, maybe sometime in the last couple of weeks, but we have entered into Jerusalem. That, that we've had what is famously known as the triumphal entry. Jesus has walked into Jerusalem, rather rode on a, a donkey, and the crowds have got palm branches and their cloaks, and they put them on the, the ground, and they have shouted, welcoming their king. It looks like a, a Roman king coming back from, from victory from war. That's, that's what the image looks like, except for this king is not a Roman king, but he is a Messiah king, and he is not coming back from war. He is about to do battle. Um, and, and so he's riding in on a donkey, and the crowd is saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're quoting Psalm 118 there. And that, that's important to remember. Just keep that in the top corner of your mind there. They're quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we have these stories, these small little stories from Mark about what goes on between Jesus entering into Jerusalem and him being crucified. And that's, that's the part of the story that we are in right now. And a lot of this, if your Bible is one of those old traditional Bibles that's got red letters in it, a lot of the text that you're looking at is red. It's a lot of teaching. It's a lot of Jesus talking. And so we're going we're gonna to reread this, this parable in this context, so hopefully we, we understand what he's doing. But he knows he's about to be crucified, and he's talking to these Jewish people who are all in town for a, a festival called Passover. Everyone, everyone's in town, basically, is what you need to know. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And he, that being Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. This is the story. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. We'll pause right there. Um, so this is a very normal thing in the first century world that Jesus is living in. It, people listening to him would, um, it, this is not a, a, a wild beginning to a story. He says, hey, there was this man and he planted a vineyard and he built a fence around it and he hired some tenants or some stewards, some managers to come and to take care of the vineyard while he went to another place. Obviously, this owner of the vineyard is wealthy. Obviously, he's got resources where he can, you know, he can plant a vineyard, he can start a farm as it were, and then he could leave and, and hire people to take care of this farm for him. This is very normal practice in the first century, so nothing um, spectacular. But what we do need to know is the imagery here in first century Judaism, um, uh, uh, of which Jesus is a first century Jew, that any time that you see a story where there's this planting of a vineyard, and especially if there's a fence built around it, what we are likely talking about is the city of Jerusalem. That there, there's some symbolism here where Jesus is, is, is already, people are going to be thinking, when they hear this man planted a vineyard and he built a fence around it, you're already asking the question, okay, are we talking about a literal vineyard here or are we, are we talking about Jerusalem? Are we talking about the city we're all sitting in right, right now if you're, if you're listening to Jesus, okay? And so, it's verse, uh, verse 2, Jesus continues the story and he says, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So the season has come, and he sends one of his servants to go to the vineyard and to say, hey, the owner wants some of the crop that, that we have harvested. He wants some of the fruit that we have grown, right? Very normal thing. He's the owner of the vineyard. This is not shocking. 
But what is shocking is that what happens in verse 3. It says, And they, that is the tenants, took him, the servant, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. That's wild. Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. If you're listening to this story as Jesus tells it in this moment, you've been following along. You've been going, okay, cool. He planted a vineyard. He left. He's got some tenants watching over the vineyard. He sends a servant to go gather some crop from the vineyard. It's his crop. It's his fruit. Of course, he would send somebody to come and to gather it from those tenants. But then the tenants decide to beat the servant and send him back empty-handed. Like, don't they know what's going to happen? Like, don't the tenants understand that what they are doing is not in their best interest? Like their boss, the one who pays their salary, sent a co-worker with them in the grand company or whatever it would have been in the first century to go grab some of the fruit that they have worked to grow. And, and so like imagine like CEO sends one of his people to, you know, your regional office and, and says, hey, boss wants this. And you just beat the mess out of the dude and then say, no, you go tell the boss we're not giving him any of his fruit. Like, what do you think's going to happen, right? Like, what do you, what do you think's going to happen? And so if you're listening to this story, you're like, okay, this is getting weird, Jesus. Okay, so verse 4. So again, he sent them another servant. The owner sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent them another. Uh, and, and him they killed. And so with many others... Some they beat and some they killed. So this becomes a pattern, which there's a whole lot of foolishness come, going on, right? Like he, he, first of all, they beat the first guy and they sent him back empty-handed. And the owner says, for whatever reason, okay, we'll try another guy. And so he's like, okay, we'll send another guy. Which you got you to gotta think, like if word has gotten out in the company and you're the guy who gets recruited to go to the vineyard and, and say, okay, I don't need you to go get the fruit. He's like, dude, I saw how Paul, I, well, Paul's a biblical name. I saw how Bob, I don't want to get confusing. I saw how Bob came back and he had a black eye and he was all beaten and stuff like that. I don't want to go in there, boss. But he, he sends the guy anyway. And the, and the tenants, of course, we've already talked about their foolishness. Like what do they think are the consequences for their actions here to beat up the man representing their boss? but they beat the other guy in fact they strike him on the head and treat him shamefully some scholars would say that this is Jesus referring to John the Baptist if you're familiar with the Bible um, in, in the Gospels you know that John the Baptist was beheaded Jesus's cousin and kind of seen as this um, prophet like figure and stuff so, so so some people think that maybe Jesus is specifically in this moment referring to John the Baptist but that's neither here nor there at this moment what, what what's going on is that we've got some tenants who keep beating or even even killing some of the servants that their owner sends to them to gather some of the fruit. And, they're, and the ones that they're beating, they're sending back empty-handed. And the owner, so that's foolish, but the owner is also sending people back to the vineyard. He keeps sending people back. He keeps sending a new servant. He keeps sending a new person to go gather the fruit. Which, if you're listening to the story at this moment, you're thinking, this is the worst-run company in the history of the world. Like these, the, 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 the tenants don't respect their boss. The boss has refused to go to the vineyard himself and lay down the law. He keeps sending new people. And the same thing keeps happening. I mean, that's the definition of insanity. To keep doing the exact same thing and expect a different result. But that's exactly 
what keeps happening. And so you're looking at this, you're, you're listening to this story as Jesus tells it, and you're saying, Jesus, where is this going? This is, this is just terrible. And probably you're really bought in because you're wondering, like, okay, like, what happened to this company? Like, what happened to this owner? Something terrible, obviously, has happened. But verse 6, he, the owner, had still one other, a beloved son, which is a, a euphemism in, in Greek and in ancient Judaism. A beloved son would be an only son. So this is the, this is the heir. This is the person who's the heir to the, the, the family fortune. So a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Yeah, right. They will respect my son. Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner do? Will he, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The story that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes." So Jesus tells this story, and if you're a first century Jewish person, especially if you're um, a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe or one of the religious leaders for um, the, the Jewish faith in this moment, um, you're, you're really clued into what Jesus is saying. Like You guys have already um, witnessed in the story of Mark some of the competition going on between Jesus and the, and the religious leaders of the day. That they, they really are not fans of what Jesus is doing, and Jesus, though he loves them, is really really harsh on them. He, 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 is, he, does, he does not believe they have led his people well, and he wants them to, to reform, to change, to repent of their sin, and of course they are unwilling to do so. And so they've got this kind of um, uh, shouting match going on, and, and, and this is another, another moment in that battle, that rhetorical battle between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so he tells this story, and you've got to know that they are clued in. And they're listening, and as they, they hear this story about this foolish um, group of tenants and this kind of like odd owner, like, like what he does doesn't really make sense. It's not logical. Does it, like you wouldn't do this if you owned a business. Most of these religious leaders would have been wealthy themselves, and so they're probably thinking that's not what I would have done with my vineyard. Like what's, what's going on? And then he starts to get more and more into the story, and you realize that who he's talking about, if you're a religious leader, he's talking about you. That what he's talking about is the whole story of the nation of Israel. That, that, that God planted a vineyard. Remember, we're talking about Jerusalem here. And they would have already thought, okay, we might be talking about Jerusalem here. He planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it. And he has demanded that that vineyard produce fruit. He's, he's demanded that that vineyard accomplish something. He's demanded that that vineyard become something that he planted it. He created it to be, that he ordained it to be. And so the, the owner sends servants one after another to try to gather that fruit. But the result of the servant being sent to that vineyard has always come up empty-handed. And, and you start to wonder, if you're a religious leader um, in the Jewish faith, you start to wonder, okay, like, is he talking about the prophets? 
Like, is he talking about in the Old Testament how God set up the nation of Israel, adopted them as his own people, and said, these are the people that you are going to be. These are the people that I want you to be, you know, I've created you to be, that I'm going to help you become. And, and so he sends these messengers, he sends these servants over and over and over again through the history of Israel to, to help them uh, return back when they, when they fail, when they sin, when they drift off, when they begin to forget the law, forget about God, and to go in a different direction. The prophets were always saying, no, 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 come back over here, come back over here, come back over here. Prophecy was never really about telling the future, it was always about realigning Israel back to the people that God created them to be. But in, in, in other words, to, to help them to produce the fruit that God planted them for. And, and so he, they're always trying to put them back into alignment. But what's the story of the prophets? I mean, Jesus said, consider yourself blessed whenever you are reviled and persecuted and people treat you badly because of me because so they treated the prophets. Like the story of the prophets in Israel is to be beaten and to be killed, and to be ostracized. If you can go and read the, the Old Testament, just story after story after story is the people who are mouthpieces for God, the people who are servants of the Lord in, God's, in, in and within God's people are cast out by God's people, are killed by God's people, are beat by God's people. And, and so you start, to, you start to get a little, a, a little angry, uh, just a little bit offended if you're a religious leader in, in, in first century Jewish um, in, in first century Jerusalem as Jesus is telling the story you start to get a little bit offended because you start to wonder is he talking about me and and then he comes to this moment where he says and the owner finally out of servants out of out of any other kind of messengers and stuff like that says I still have one more my one and only beloved son I'm going to send him and surely they will respect him now, it's important that you don't um, um, overanalyze this parable because we, we mentioned how the owner comes off as extremely foolish in this story. And it's important that you not think that Jesus is portraying Yahweh God as foolish. That's not what he's trying to do. Obviously, in, given the history that's what's happened in this parable, any business owner who says, well, surely they're going to respect my son is not learning from history. Right? He's not paying attention. But that's not the point of this parable. The point is, is that God finally sent his beloved son. And, and, and what we mean by that is that God became man in Jesus. Jesus is the divine um, son of God there in the flesh telling them this story. And so he says, God, the owner of the vineyard, that is God, sent his one and only son and expected to be re respected. But in the reality, God knew what was going to happen. In fact, it's all part of God's plan. And what happened was that Jesus walked the earth. He, he taught us about God. He was the image of God. No one had ever seen God, but anyone who sees Jesus sees God. And he, he lived the life that, that we could never live as the people of God. If we we're to put ourselves in, at this point in the, in the shoes of, of first century Jews, that we, that's our history. Like we've, God has sent messengers. He's sent service, servants to us, and we have just beat them. We have just, we've beaten them. We've reviled them. We've mistreated them. We've persecuted them, and we have sent them packing empty-handed because we didn't want to hear about it. We, we don't want to hear about our sin. We don't want to hear about the things that we're doing wrong. We don't want to hear about the things that God wants from us. I want to do my thing. And so we, we hear about the story of God sending messengers, and then finally he says that God sent his one and only son. 
And the problem is, is that if he's going to send his one and only son to save the world, the implication is, is that we need a savior. And that's offensive. It's offensive that the owner would send his one and only son in order to, to save us. And so we, so we killed him. And so we killed him. Now, you and I didn't kill him. You, I didn't, you know, have anything to do with the crucifixion of Jesus personally. Like, I wasn't there. It was long before I was born, long before anyone in this room was born. But the fact is, is that in our sin, in our disobedience and rebellion from God, we crucified Jesus. That if you, you might know this story, but um, uh, when he was making the, the movie The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson appears in this movie one time. He's not actually in the movie. Like, you never see his face. He doesn't have any lines, but he appears in the movie one time, and it's his hand nailing Jesus' hand to the cross. Because Mel Gibson understood, as, as much as Mel Gibson has got his issues, uh, Mel Gibson understood that he had a part in nailing Jesus to the cross. And everyone in this room, we, we like to look at ourselves and we like to think, okay, well, we must be um, the good guys in the parables of Jesus. We must be the people who are the heroes. We must be the people who are, are uh, painted in a good light, if there's anybody painted in a good light in this parable. But the reality is that we are the tenants. We are the religious leader. We are the people, if you are in Christ at this moment, if you consider yourself a Christian, we are the people that God has put on earth in order to become a kind of people, in order to bear fruit and to show the world what God is like. And just like ancient Israel, we constantly, constantly fail. We constantly fail. We're constantly, as it were, sending God's messengers out ostracizing them, beating them, sending them away empty-handed. God comes to us and he says, this is who I want you to be. And we say, we don't want to be that. We want our own kingdom. We want our own way of doing things. We want our own authority. Don't tell me what to do. But notice, notice what the, um, the tenants say. Notice their conclusion here. When the owner sends his son... They say, look, this is the heir. If we kill him, then the inheritance is ours. As if the owner's dead. Right? No, seriously, that's, what you, that's the reaction that you should have. Is that what they're, like, there's, there's, a, there's a wild um, uh, overlooking of an incredibly important fact when it comes to the inheritance. Is that the owner is still alive. So if you kill the heir, it doesn't mean that you get the inheritance. And but, but here's the point. Here's Jesus' point, I think, when he talks about the inheritance and, and, and the tenants of the field, um, tenants of the vineyard, saying, here's the heir, if we kill him, we get the inheritance. Is that Jesus is pointing to the reality that the religious leaders of his day, the Jewish people of his day, his people now, is that the reality is, is that we often want the kingdom, but we don't want the king. We often want the inheritance, but we don't want the heir. We often want what God can give us, but we don't want God himself. Now, I am uh, uh, preparing to plant a church in Austin, um, and as you probably know, because Austin is well known um, for this, uh, Austin is one of the most post-Christian cities in the United States. 
Um, and what we mean by post-Christian uh, is exactly what it sounds like. It's the opposite of pre-Christian. And, and so pre-Christian world, you're introducing Jesus. You're saying, hey, this is this good news of the gospel. And they're like, wow, I've never heard that before. That's crazy. They may not take it, but it's like, man, that's that's pretty cool story and all that stuff. Um, in a post-Christian world, what they do is they identify themselves over and against Christianity. So they know about Christianity, and they don't like it. And they, don't, they don't want it. And, of course, I'm generalizing like an entire major metropolitan metropolis area but like but you know what i'm saying so it's a post-christian city in that like it's possible that i will go around in austin or some of our team will go around in austin and say hey we're starting a church and and the response that we won't get which might be the response more in, in the places where i'm from like the bible belt and stuff uh, would be oh that's really good it's not for me but that's really good you guys do some good stuff for society i'm, I'm glad that you guys are here in austin what is likely to happen is not that but if i'm going to say and hey i'm a pastor i'm a follower of jesus we're here to start a church the reaction that we're going to get is oh you guys are actually part of the problem you guys are the ones holding us society back you guys are the ones who are, are, are kind of like pulling strings behind us keeping us from progressing and and and, and we're, we're learning we're learning how to do that I'm, I'm from the deep south bible belt and all of my full-time ministry experiences at the largest baptist university in the world so we're, we're getting all the training we can to 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 pastor in austin um, but, but, but here's the reality. In a place like, uh, in a place like Austin, in a post-Christian world, um, uh, there is a lot of we want the kingdom, and, there, and there's a lot of we don't want the king. And this is something I'm pulling from a guy named Mark Sayers, um, who pastors a church in Australia, an extremely secular um, country, and in a place called Melbourne, extremely secular um, city. And what he has noticed about uh, what cities like Austin or like Melbourne or where really the whole Western world is headed is, is that we talk a lot about kingdom things, right? Like we talk a lot about equality. We talk a lot about freedom. We talk a lot about um, health and, and helping humans flourish. We talk a lot about these things. We, we want the kingdom. We want these good things, but we, we have rejected Christianity as, as a whole. We've rejected Jesus. And so what Mark Sayer says is that you want the kingdom, but you don't want the king, right? So, so for instance, when, when I talk to one of, some of my uh, non-Christian friends um, who, who talk about kind of the, the racist history um, that Christianity has, and it, and it does, there, there's no denying that, that Christianity, much like um, the, the tenants in the field, like Christianity has failed to provide a, 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 an accurate image of who God is in, in, in many ways. And so there's this racist history um, behind Christianity, and, and that's always, that's always um, uh, going to be there. Um, but what they don't realize is when they're arguing against Christianity because of the, the race and racism that has existed in the church, what they don't know is that the whole reason why they, as a Western person, person um, uh, believe that racism is wrong and they value equality is because of the influence of Christianity on the Western world. Like they, 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 they don't understand that the whole reason why they believe racism is wrong is because of the doctrine of the Imago Dei. They just don't know that. Or, or, or they, they believe that the, in gender equality, they believe that, they, they, that women should be valued and they should have um, an equal place in society as men. Amen. I believe that. And Christianity is oftentimes not represented that well. Christianity has often not been a, a good um, uh, 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 proponent of um, elevating women into places of leadership and, and valuing them in society. And so we have in many ways perpetuated sexism. That's real. 
But what, what, what somebody might not understand is, is that the only reason why we have a, even a category in this room for gender equality is because Christianity, for the first time in history, provided dignity for women. I mean, if you, if you read the story of the Bible, all you see is Jesus lifting up women and Paul putting women um, in places of, of leadership. Like, he, the Christianity invented gender equality. And so now we've got a world who refuses to believe that, refuses to acknowledge that, and says, we want equality, we want gender equality, we want health care, we want all these things, we want all these good things, justice, all this stuff that was really invented by Jesus. They want the kingdom, but the moment that you say, yeah, but you know, Jesus is the one who, who brought all that to the world. He's the one who's building his kingdom on earth. They say, no, 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 we don't. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. They want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. They want the inheritance. They want what Jesus can bring, but they don't want Jesus. But it's not just a post-Christian thing. It's also a Bible Belt cultural Christianity thing. It, oftentimes in, in the churches that I grew up in, the focus was not, the good news of the gospel was not focused on Jesus, but it was focused on getting out of hell. It was focused on gaining heaven. I want my inheritance. But the minute that Jesus called me to go for the sake of his kingdom, to go for the sake of his gospel, to, to sacrifice, to sell everything that I had and to follow Jesus to wherever he would call me, that, that was off limits. I was cool with calling myself a Christian. I was cool with being um, someone who was headed to heaven when I died. I was cool with the cultural things that Christianity brought. I loved the family feel. I loved the small town, um, great place to raise your kids kind of a thing. I loved how the church would raise my kids kind of a thing, like that kind of stuff there. But the minute Jesus demanded something of my life that I didn't, or wasn't willing to give him, I didn't want anything to do with him. I wanted the Christianity, but I didn't want the Christ. I wanted the kingdom, but I didn't want the king. I wanted the inheritance, but I didn't want the heir. And here's the thing. Jesus came not only to bring in his kingdom. Yes, he came to bring in his kingdom. But he came as God with us. The good news of the gospel is not just that God is renewing the world back to his uh, original intent, that, that, that he's recreating things, that he's bringing his kingdom. That is good news. That's really good news. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come. The good news of the gospel is that God has given us himself, that, that God is not distant. He didn't stay away in that foreign country just simply sending messengers to us so that we could beat them and send them back empty-handed. He didn't stay distant trying to get other people to solve the problems. What God did was he became man and walked among us. He entered into our brokenness. He entered into our sin. He entered into our rebellion and he, and he walked among us as one who walked according to the way that God intended all of humanity to walk. He imaged God perfectly where Adam and Eve said, no, we don't want your kingship, God. We want to be our own kings. Jesus lived perfectly under the ruler, um, the, the kingship of um, his cre the, the creator God and, and, and then not only that, paid the penalty for the sin that, that we deserve. Not only that, became one of the servants. 
He didn't consider the kingdom of God or equality with God something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, taking the position of a servant, taking a position of one who was sent to the vineyard, knowing that he would be beaten, knowing that he would be killed, but that he would not be sent back empty-handed. That he would be beaten and that he would be killed and that he would, he would rest for, for three days and then he would rise from the grave, ushering in the new creation, ushering in the new kingdom, bringing um, the, the, the thing that God's always wanted to bring uh, to earth uh, uh, um, uh, with him and also bringing you and me. Gathering the fruit, gathering those who God sent him to gather, gathering up a people, creating a new vineyard, as it, as it were, that will last forever and ever and ever. And we will be his people and he will be our God. God has given him, giving us himself. That's the good news of the gospel. And so my question to you this morning is as, as, a, as a core team member trying to help start this church, as a visitor trying to check out this whole Christianity thing, as someone who has been around Christianity your whole life and there's this new church in town and you're thinking, I want to check this out, that kind of thing. Maybe you were staying at this hotel and you wandered in. That's awesome, by the way. Welcome. The question I want to ask you is, 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 is what do you want? What do you want? Do you want the inheritance or do you want the heir? Do you want the kingdom or do you want the king? God has offered himself to you. What an incredible, what an incredible thing. What incredibly good news. And my invitation to you this morning is to to accept that to receive God, to receive Jesus and say, God, whatever it is that you can give me, whatever it is, all that stuff, that, that, that's great. But what I really want is you. So wherever you're calling me, God, I'm, I'm following you. I'm going with you. Wherever you go, I'm, I'm, I'm following your lead, Father. I want you. I want more of you, Father. Let's pray.